We all try to live a healthy, conscientious life. And yet, there's one area beyond food and body care and transportation that is utterly unsustainable. And that is the clothes on our body. Our topic in this hour is cheap fashion, the harm and hidden cost. Today, here on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. We all try to look presentable, well, most of us, and maybe even fashionable. But with the fabric on our skin, our desire to live a greener life does not translate. How bad is the clothing industry really? And what is the alternative? Do we all need to wear that ill-fitting hemp shirt to make a point? We'll find out in this hour with an expert on the topic. But before we dive into that topic fully, as always, we are starting the show off with a week's review. Sita. And it's somewhat of a related topic, actually. Helga, you found this one and brought it to the conversation. And I think that it was very apropos because you're both an athlete and a sailor. And you came across this piece about a major fashion line that is doing something to help the oceans. Yes. I read an article on Tree Hugger by Margaret Bedore. She's an editor for Treehugger out of New York, and she wrote a piece on Adidas using gill nets, fishing nets that were confiscated because they're illegal by Sea Shepherd. Sea Shepherd is an wow. organization that is protecting the oceans and has boats and deals with illegal whaling and all kinds of ocean-related issues uh, founded by the gentleman who also founded Greenpeace. After a few years, he left Greenpeace feeling that was not radical enough. And he's kind of a radical environmentalist out there. Um, I think he has his own show on Discovery Channel. Yeah, I think he People might People are now. pretty familiar <laughs> with who he is. And um, they confiscated these gill nets that are really bad for fish and aquatic life. The gill net goes behind the gills of the fish, and then it's basically suffocating the fish to death. So they confiscated piles and piles of this one vessel and gave them to Adidas, and Adidas found a way to make a tennis shoe, a sneaker, out of it. It looks beautiful, actually. It's a really cool design. It's just a prototype. It's not yet available in the market, but I found it was just an amazing example of something that can be that harmful and negative to be turned into something positive. That's where our creativity shines. I think if we don't just deal with waste and find a better way of burning it, which is, you know, maybe a decent solution, but actually creating something beautiful, practical, and even fashionable. It's a really neat shoe. If there's enough demand, I'm sure Adidas will launch this and many other companies will follow suit. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure if they know there's a market for it. And I I am really encouraged when I see major brands like Adidas taking these efforts. This corporate social responsibility, environmental responsibility is really going to be a trendsetter for a lot of other businesses that aren't yet doing it. And it's going to have a big impact because of the sheer quantity 
of sales that they do. Yeah, I mean, every every work we can do locally, small scale, you know, within the community is amazing. But you're right. At the same time, if a multinational corporation changes something, for example, switches their high fructose corn syrup to regular sugar, not the healthiest option still, but wow, the impact on the environment and even on our health is tremendous. Communities and countries will change because mm-hmm. of that one decision. That's phenomenal. Each one of these steps, when you start putting them together, make a huge difference. And this is, I think, the, probably the best way to do it is to implement changes every place that we can think of them. And, yes. you know, of course, I am curious what happens when those shoes are no longer wearable. I mean, after they've gone through multiple owners and have been consigned or donated just to make sure they don't end up back in the ocean. Yeah, and Adidas even went so far as the shoes knitted, which has the advantage of producing less waste than traditional shoemaking techniques because, um, you know, there's a lot of ways when you cut the pattern of the shoe and everything that you want for the shoe, the leftover stuff, there's not really a recycling market for Mm. that. So this one is knitted. It really just uses the gill nets somehow to put the shoe together as if it was yarn. And that's just, that's just brilliant. So it's not just turning one, you know, bad product or waste or something that we shouldn't use into something really functional. It's also the the very method Adidas went all out. Yeah, improved operations. Yes. Well, we'll talk more about that additional waste. (laughs) in specific cuttings of garments. We'll get into that later. Exactly. How apropos. Thanks for bringing that up. Thank Um, you for bringing it up. Yes, thank me. (laughs) Our topic in this hour is cheap fashion, the harm and hidden cost. An entire hour with an expert on the topic, how bad is the fashion industry and what are our alternatives? That's what's coming up. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And this is An Organic Conversation. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit Earl's Organic. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is the hidden cost and the harm of cheap fashion. An entire hour dedicated to the apparel industry. But first, here is... The update from the world of health and beauty. Chef Sita, a.k.a. Sita Rani Palomar, and her holistic bite. Well, have you ever been asked that question that if you had to live in a desert island, what would be the one food that you would eat? No. You've never had that question asked? <laughs> well, I, I, heard, thought, I heard what would you bring, but not what if food. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life on a desert <laughs> island. Nut. 
It's a hard thing. Well, <laughs> coconut is the practical decision if you oh, end up on an island with coconut. But if you could take one thing. You know, I thought a lot about this. And ultimately, at some point, I landed on one of the simplest foods that just always satiates me. And it's rice and soy sauce. I can't say that it's actually one of the healthiest foods that you could eat. I mean, in this fictional world, I don't have to worry about nutrients. But it's a good example of something that I love that over the years, I've tried to improve these kinds of comfort foods. And this one has evolved into one of my favorites because it also makes a really quick meal because I've boosted it with a lot of great ingredients. So now the upgraded comfort desert island food is brown rice with sesame oil and tamari topped with kimchi and gomasio. This is a combination of a fair amount of macrobiotic or pseudo-Japanese. I suppose most of these are Japanese, but sesame oil is something that's used all over Asia as is tamari. But the genius in this coming together is the range of nutrients that you're getting. Because with brown rice instead of white rice, you're getting a complex carbohydrate that has a lot of fiber in it. And especially as a quick meal, something that I can just heat up if I make a big pot of brown rice and eat it for dinner, complex carbohydrates have tryptophan in them. So they help you to sleep better at night. And then the tamari, tamari is gluten-free soy sauce. So it's an allergy-friendly condiment. It's also a fermented soy product. And fermented soy is far better than, than other soy. And it helps to give it that umami flavor, which is just so satisfying. And then I top it with kimchi, which is another fermented food. It's, it's like sauerkraut. So it's fermented cabbage with some onion and ginger and carrot and garlic and various other ingredients. But because it's a fermented food, it has lactobacilli in it, which means it's very healthy for your gut, and your health begins in your gut. And we've done great episodes on fermentation with both Sandor Cats and Karen Diggs. You can find those on inorganicconversation.com to understand more about the health benefits of kimchi and sauerkraut and other fermented foods. But I top my brown rice with the sesame oil and the tamari, and then I put on a scoop of kimchi, and I finish it off with a dusting of gamasio. And gamasio is another macrobiotic condiment. It is a combination of toasted sesame seeds, and it's frequently ground with sea salt and also dulse, which is a sea vegetable. And if you listen to our sea vegetable episode last summer, there are so many minerals in sea vegetables because they come from the sea, which is mineral rich. And sesame seeds are also a great source of calcium, so it's calcium rich. So for me now, this simple meal, which is so good for me that I can put together in a pinch, is a staple for any night when I don't have a lot of time to put something together and I need a very nourishing meal or leftovers for a very nourishing breakfast or lunch the next day. Find the recipe online at inorganicconversation.com. And that was this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. Wow. And you could add a little bit of miso, depending oh, on how are salty. Miso I'm a miso. We you should do a holistic bite I on miso. I want you to do a okay, holistic I'm, bite I'm going to do a holistic bite on miso coming up soon. Okay. And the island must be just outside of, in front of Japan, somewhere in the ocean there. It could be, with all of these ingredients. (laughs) (laughs) Asian fusion influenced. Thank you, Sita. That's Sita Rani Palomar and her holistic bite. Our topic in this hour is cheap fashion, the harm and hidden cost. We all try to live a healthy, conscientious life, and yet there's one area beyond food and body care and transportation that is utterly unsustainable. And we have an expert on this topic with us who's joining us today from Brooklyn, New York, Elizabeth Klein. She's the author of Overdressed, the Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion. Elizabeth, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me on. 
Wonderful. Thanks for making the time. And you released this book and it launched a storm of reactions from the media, including us. It's kind of known what's going on, at least on a very superficial level. But you really dove into that topic for years and found out some things. And we want to talk about how bad the fashion industry really is or what the concerns are and what efforts are on their way to change that, what you have seen, what is actually perhaps improving it's easy to get excited about discount fashion we feel when we find something that looks good on us and it's really inexpensive that's a good deal but what's the whole story what makes clothing harmful in the fashion industry or the apparel industry so wasteful what are the hidden costs of cheap fashion That is the million-dollar question, and I started writing Overdressed because I needed to know that answer for myself. I know the allure of cheap fashion. I owned a lot of it before I started writing the book, and, you know, I think that it's human nature to want to buy something that's inexpensive. It's like kind of like getting something for nothing. You do get kind of a rush or a thrill out of it. And what I found when I started to dig into the whole world of cheap fashion is that it's really the fast fashion, the so-called fast fashion retailers that are driving the decline in price and quality in fashion. And fast fashion retailers are those retailers like H&M and Forever 21 and Zara who are able to produce new products and put it on shelves on an almost daily basis. And what's really wrong with that whole system is that it's incredibly unsustainable from both an economic standpoint and an environmental standpoint. Because if you look at how much product they're producing, it requires a tremendous amount of human capital, so people making those clothes for poverty wages. And it also requires a tremendous amount of natural resources, whether it's cotton, which is incredibly water thirsty, or if it's polyester, which requires oil, which is a fossil fuel and contributes to global warming. So really the whole problem with cheap clothing is that it, it's a problem of volume. There's simply too much of it in the world and it is an unsustainable business model. So when you talk about that, just to put some numbers behind it, I got a great magazine conscious company that took a take on the apparel industry and it's mind-blowing. There are about 60 million people estimated to be working in the fashion industry worldwide. And as you said, right. cotton is a big part and Cotton is input intensive and it also takes mm -hmm. almost 3% of global water uh, is used for growing cotton. 700 gallons are used is the amount of water that it takes to produce a single cotton t-shirt. And 99% of all those clothing could be recyclable or is recyclable and it, it's not. So I thought that, for example, when we talk about the labor industry that, uh, or the labor segment, that child labor underpaid in really horrible working conditions was kind of a, a thing of the 70s or 80s. And then, of course, the collapse of, of the, uh, the, garment the garment factory mm -hmm. brought to light that, no, it's not at all. Are, are you seeing any kind of improvement or is basically the standard how to make cheap fashion the same and has been for the last 30, 40 years? What I would say is that what's happening in the garment industry is really indicative of Uh, wider economic trends. So inequality is growing almost all around the world. So when you look at payment in the garment industry, it's either been stagnant or going down over the last 
10 to 20 years. There are only a handful of countries where you've seen um, workers making gains. So that really goes against the narrative that we tell ourselves that garment work is sort of, you know, like the first rung in a ladder towards economic development or towards a better life. Mm -hmm. That reality for garment workers has not really been there since the 80s and 90s. It hasn't been it hasn't been a reality since the garment industry left the United States and was unionized. And I think people maybe focus a little too much on the really you know, the big industrial accidents and child labor and things like that. When I think the bigger picture is that this is a garment work is a poverty paying job. There is very few exceptions to that around the world. And what happens when you lock people into poverty to make cheap clothes for consumers? You know, it breeds social unrest. There's protests and strikes happening in the garment industry all over the world. And it's also a human rights issue. This is not, this should not be happening around the world in 2016. Elizabeth, you mentioned a couple of retailers that makes it very easy to identify which items are considered harmful or disposable. But do you have other tips so people can know if the fashion items that they're purchasing are are falling into this category of wasteful and, and harmful to society? Unfortunately, not really. I think that that's one thing that the slow fashion movement is, you know, that's really the big call to action right now is to get companies like H&M, these, these really big retailers, so H&M and Gap and Zara and Forever 21, to be more transparent so that consumers do know what it's like inside the factories and they do know what the workers' lives are like. And at least with smaller fashion brands like Everlane, for example, which is this really great online, transparent, ethical brand, they're kind of setting the example and putting pressure on bigger brands. And, you know, H&M, they've come around in the, in the last couple of years. You can, you can find a list of all, the fact, all of their factories on their website, and they're trying to work on a living wage campaign so that people that work in their factories are paid a living wage by 2017. If they're able to achieve that, that would be a huge watershed moment for the fashion industry. But I still think we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And what about what about these big discount retailers? I mean, that's another trend. In addition to these brands or, or mm-hmm. stores that are known for having high turnover, um, really inexpensive clothing, there's also an industry where you can go and it's multiple labels. And I don't know how they're getting them, you know, secondhand or, or last season or something. But that's another place where people are buying in big quantity. What can you tell us? about that in relation to this topic do you mean um like tj maxx exactly yes exactly um (laughs) yes the reason they're there is because americans are trained or consumers all over the world really now are trained to shop cheaply or expect low price so for a brand that's a little bit more expensive like say they sell a shirt for forty dollars instead of ten dollars so the brands that still sell through department stores end up a lot of their product ends up at TJ Maxx and Marshalls where the price is a little bit sweeter and people will will buy it up. It's just it's yet another piece of this whole system that is is churning out a tremendous amount of clothing. But H&M, a company like H&M what's different is they're producing the last figure I saw was 600 million items of clothing per year and they open more than one store a day. So in terms of the quantity of clothing, the quantity of stuff that they're churning out, no one can really touch that. 
So the bigger impact are these own label stores that have multiple locations all around the world. Right, because if you start getting into the the environmental impact of of the fashion industry, the environmental impact of that t-shirt, but it's also the environmental impact of opening a new store. If you look at Mm. like the footprint of a H&M or Forever 21, like their flagship stores are so huge. If you just, you know, think about like how much product they're shipping all the way across the ocean to, to fill up those stores, it's it's really incredible. The, the the footprint is just monstrous. You're listening to an again a conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we're speaking with Elizabeth Klein, the author of Overdress, the shockingly high cost of cheap fashion. In this hour of an again a conversation, on cheap fashion, the harm and hidden cost of the apparel industry, as we are trying to live a green lifestyle when it comes to the textile on our skin, it so often does not translate. Elizabeth, we are taking a quick break, but please stay on the phone with us. We want to talk about more about the identification and purchase of mindful fashion labels, what's happening in just a minute when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And in this hour of cheap fashion, the harm and hidden costs, we're speaking with Elizabeth Klein, an expert on the topic, who's joining us today from Brooklyn, New York. Her book, Overdressed, the Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, that's overdressedthebook.com, made her an expert on the topic or showed the expertise that she has. And... We are grateful that you're able to join us a little bit. You talked about, let's talk about landfill. You talked about waste that is being accumulated. It's amazing that while those mega stores exist, the average poundage that an average American discards every year of clothes is somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 pounds, 85% Mm -hmm. of which ends up in landfills. But there is something about the fashion industry itself the way clothing is made with all the leftover cuttings and there's no real recycled stream for it. Can you talk about that a little bit more before we dive into the identification of mindful fashion, what people can do? How much waste is actually being accumulated? What what ends up in landfills? Sure, absolutely. Um, That is, uh, the world of textile waste is something that I ended up getting unexpectedly sucked into while writing Overdressed. It's I don't know, there's just something so fascinating about it. But yeah, 85% of textiles um, end up in landfills, which is 
really an outrage considering that textiles are almost 100% reusable or recyclable. And, you know, I think the the number would be even higher if it wasn't for the fact that Americans have kind of gotten into the habit, consumers all over the world really have gotten into the habit of storing clothes that they'd never wear, barely wear, under their bed, in their closet, in their attic, in their basement. They just got all these clothes that they don't wear. So we do have a massive textile waste issue, and it's not just a consumer problem. As you mentioned, it is also the retailers. When a piece of clothing is designed, it's at least for the major retailers, they're not really thinking about maximizing that piece of fabric so there's not a lot of waste. And, you know, when when brands are in the uh, design phase, they're going to produce a lot of samples and produce designs that are never going to make it onto the shelves. And all of that ends up in the landfill as well. So it's it's an extremely wasteful process from start to finish. And then it's estimated, I saw that number, if you can confirm that, the, the estimated number of synthetic chemicals that are used worldwide to turn a raw material like cotton into textiles is somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,000, 8,000 chemicals before the shirt actually makes it onto the shelf. Mind-blowing. That's the first time I'm hearing that. That's, <laughs> that's horrifying. Uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's absolutely horrifying. It's in the same vicinity for me for 700 gallons of water for a single shirt. I know there are thousands right. of, of uh, gallons of water needed for a pound of steak from a cow because it's the washing, the drinking, the processing. Processing just takes so much energy and resources, labor and chemicals and water in whatever industry you're in, really. And interestingly enough, when you when you say that you know most of these clothes that are being discarded could be used or that end up in a in a landfill, there are many people in many parts of the world that have nothing to wear. So it's interesting that there's really no system yet where those clothes, instead of ending up in a landfill, could be brought to to people that would very much appreciate them and use them. That's not entirely true because all of the clothing, the vast majority of the clothing that Americans do donate to charity or drop off at their, you know, local clothing drop off, 80% of that ends up overseas in secondhand clothing markets because we simply just donate too much to charities for it to be resold in charity shops. So, You know, we do throw a tremendous amount of clothing away, but we also have a lot of clothing in the secondhand used clothing stream as well. Billions of pounds end up being shipped to other countries because charities and thrift shops in the U.S. can't simply process it all. Um, I, I just bring that up because people, I think, imagine that for every piece of clothing they buy, there's going to be some poor person in their community that's desperate to wear it. And that that reality, that just hasn't been true in, in, in decades, and, and Americans really need to wake up to that. So is that a good thing when we donate our clothes at least so it doesn't end up in a landfill and then gets shipped overseas and ends up at, at cheap clothing markets there? Is that a good yeah. thing or is that not a I good think thing? It, no, it absolutely is a good thing. Yeah. It's, it's diverting waste from, a land, from uh, landfills. I think it's one piece of what should be a larger pie in dealing with textile waste. You know, I know some fashion designers are moving towards zero waste design, so they produce garments without any excess scraps or fabric when yes. they're make, designing and making a garment. And they're also starting to make clothing 
that is able to be taken apart and recycled into new garments at the end of its useful life. So I think the secondhand market is just one piece of this this sort of bigger shift that we need to move towards in terms of thinking really holistically about clothing. Well, and something that I feel I was taking away from what you were saying there is that there is this mentality that it's okay for me to buy all of these things that I covet if I can afford to do it because somebody is going to want it when I don't want it anymore. And that just isn't necessarily the case on our shores. And yes, it is great that they're being donated overseas. But if we were more mindful about the fact that we actually don't need the quantity of clothing that we're used to purchasing, um, that's going to help significantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that's a really good point, because I know that when natural disasters happen, like one thing that a lot of people do is they're like, oh, I'm going to donate clothes. And I know in Haiti, for example, they got so much, they got such an influx of donated clothes, because that's what we associate with being helpful, that they had to burn them. There was just too much of it. Really? Um, And I do think we have to let go of that idea that that's just a convenient solution for buying too much. It's like, oh, well there's always going to be some poor person that needs my stuff that I don't want anymore. That is really fascinating. So there's, of course, the alternative, buy less, buy consignment, see that you swap in closets and like, you know, before you buy really a brand new piece, there are lots of alternatives. Consignment for sure is is generally the way that I go. And Helga, when you talked about 8,000 chemicals chemicals being used, I mean, I I (laughs) think that the organic cotton apparel Mm -hmm. industry is certainly growing and and i am really excited about that but it's growing very slowly because i just don't think that the mindset people are putting towards their organic food and even now their organic beauty is not yet extending to their organic garments and i would like to see Mm -hmm. a lot more especially in terms of of large fashion brands doing more with organic cotton because right now the organic cotton that I usually see is in like t-shirts and underwear, but there are so many more things that we create that could be created out of organic cotton. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So now in addition to trying to buy organic cotton when you can, buying consignment when you can, what are other, and and potentially not shopping at any of these stores that we've identified that are just taking up huge amounts of Mm -hmm. space and, and producing, I think you said 600 million pieces a year? Yeah, yeah, a year. What are other ways that you can identify and then purchase mindful fashion? Are there particular labels? Are there particular practices, things you should look out for? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways to approach it. I think for finding out about ethical brands, there are so many coming up that it's hard it's hard for me to even keep track of them and i would say in that instance the internet is your friend for researching ethical fashion brands one of my favorite or two of my favorites are zadie and everlane which are sort of like ethical versions of j crew and they're online only i think that most medium to large size cities have indie fashion scenes now so shop local when you can go buy designs that are made uh, designed and produced in your area. And that used to be, that would have been impossible five years ago. And now it seems like every city has a denim brand or some sort of fashion line that's, that's up and coming and made locally. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, oh, and the other thing about secondhand is that has also moved online in a really cool way. I use this website called ThreadUp, which is an online secondhand consignment store. And they'll they will send you a prepaid bag that you can put all of your clothes in and just 
give it to your mailman and they will sort through your clothes and give you a credit and then you can use that credit to buy new clothes. I know a lot of high schoolers and college kids are really into clothing swaps, trading and sharing clothes. I think the sharing economy is one really exciting aspect of what's happening with slow, mindful fashion these days. And I could go on and on, but... (laughs) That's just a couple of them. Yeah, there, there are some um, other sustainable apparel brands that are going towards no waste, as you were saying, in, in new designs, in their right. recycling efforts. Just to, to give a shout out, Evernew, yeah, uh, Loom State, um, Seemly Company, Noble Denim, Victor Athletics, uh, Nikita and Vesper, Indigenous Designs, of course, and Eileen Fisher. It's coming and it, the awareness is growing. And with what's at stake, I mean, Sita, you bringing up cotton. I'm in the field of sustainable agriculture and cotton is one of the highest feeders that you could possibly have. It's as bad as corn, synthetic yeah. fertilizers, synthetic pesticides. So really from from the soil that we do that we do harm to to the plant to the local communities to agriculture at large to our waterways to then the the fabric that makes the the company that makes the the clothing labor standards. It's really it's a completely unsustainable threat, intentional pun here until we buy it and all that is supported through our dollar when there's so many better ways that you just listed to do it actually for less money or as expensively and get a much greener product keeping it in the recycling cycle and mm-hmm. and you know end up with less and stuff that you really love wearing as you said most of us have closets full of of things and there's always 10 items that we have not worn in six months well most likely you won't ever really it's not worth it taking up storage space and interestingly enough storage is one of the largest growing industry in the u.s Hmm. we actually buy storage space to store stuff that we actually don't want anymore (laughs) just because we can't let go it's such a bizarre psychology but talking about that what else do you think we're almost out of time but i want to end on that kind of high note in a way for encouragement from you what do you think it will take to empower society to switch from kind of trendy disposable you know one-time worn if that style to a lasting healthy style what's what's needed well i'm glad that you said the word society because i think that it is going to take a change in our mindset not just as consumers but as citizens and i think that's why you know fashion revolution day which has happened for the last two years on april 24th the anniversary of the Bangladesh factory collapse is such a promising movement. And that's basically just a social media movement where people wear their clothes inside out all day in order to put pressure on brands to clean up their act. So the movement is not just about changing our personal habits, but getting these retailers to do the right thing and to be more sustainable and more ethical as well. Because without getting them on board to this change, Slow fashion is just going to remain a niche movement. And I I think it's going to have a much wider impact if we can get the big retailers on board as well. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. This interview has been as insightful and empowering as I hoped it would be. And you have such a wealth of information to share. And we really appreciate you sharing it with us and our listeners. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks for all your work. Keep doing it. We'll have you back. (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. Take care. I love that. All right. Bye. Thanks. That's Elizabeth Klein, the author of Overdressed, the shockingly high cost of cheap fashion. 
overdressedthebook.com, her website, all one word, overdressedthebook.com, who joined us again from Brooklyn, New York, an expert on the topic of cheap fashion. Check out her work. And she's also a musician. Shout out for her band, The Mortals. That's Elizabeth Klein in this hour of Cheap Fashion, The Harm and Hidden Cost, here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Such an underserved topic in society, it seems. It's there, but not really. You know, like it's not fully on our mind, on our radar screen every well, day. Well, it's something that really jumped out at me in the end of the conversation was she mentioned something called Fashion Revolution Day on April 24th. I actually had not yet heard of this, and I find it extremely encouraging that there is more attention being given in a regular way. And the fact that people will turn their clothing inside out as a way to put pressure on the fashion industry. I think that people saying, well, what is this all about when they see people with clothes on inside out? It's going to get the dialogue going. And I really do agree with her that we don't want to see the slow fashion industry just become a niche or an underground movement. It's important that it becomes, I mean, look at the organic food movement. Change maker really exactly. for anyone, no matter the size of the company. We have to up the ante. And um, hopefully by 2017, everyone will get somewhat fair wages around the world. But that's a good goal to Well, it's one particular retailer. On I don't yeah. know that it's going to be across the board, but it's better. It's significantly better. Yeah, well, usually when one does it and then talks sure. about it or is known for it, everyone else kind of follows suit, usually in whatever time frame. But yes, sustainable fashion is the way to go. And um, organic produce is the way to go, too. The way to go next. Yes. What's in season <laughs> is coming up. So much more. Stay tuned. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Switching from sustainable fashion, hopefully sustainable fashion, to sustainable agriculture. Uh, here is the update from the world of fruits and vegetables directly from the dock, live from the produce dock in San Francisco. Here is what's in season. Whistler. And with us, <laughs> with with us now, <laughs> I hope, is Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco Produce Market, Mr. Organic, from Earl's Organic Produce. That's earlsorganic.com. Earl, are you with us? Hello, I am here. You are How are y'all doing? Here. We're good. We're good. It's been a... 
It's been a really interesting hour talking about something completely not food related. Well, but related. It's we talked about the fashion industry and how unsustainable our desire to have, you know, a really green lifestyle when it comes to food. Uh, when it comes to body care, when it comes to transportation, we have all these options now to make better choices. And with fashion, it's just now starting our awareness, expanding into the areas of really unsustainable uh, practices and, and alternatives, luckily. So from from sustainable or unsustainable fashion to sustainable agriculture, much easier nowadays. <laughs> Yes. It's true. It's, it is kind of the trendsetter for all of the other things we're trying yeah, to Yeah, it's leading the improve. charge of awareness mm -hmm. and, and transparency. And you are only dealing with organic produce and have always yep. only dealt with organic produce. So you've seen the changes that are occurring, of course, on a weekly basis and year by year, how many more restaurants and retail stores and are now embracing local and organic food over you know, 10, 15 years ago. It's just amazing. The movement that you are yeah. part of and the movement that you created. So speaking of this abundance right now, again, July, August, September, really the fattest month when it comes to organic production and local produce. What's happening on the dock? Mm. What's happening at Earl's Organic? Well, you know, you can start to sense the change. You know, here we are in August and, uh, you know, the days very slowly are getting shorter. I mean, you know, insignificant, maybe shame on me for even saying that because uh, August is... And now they will. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is a fairly unique time because this is the one time of year where you have in season at the same time soft stone fruit, very summer, and then the beginning, the emerging of the fall crop of apples and pears. So it, it's really unique in that sense because, you know, uh, apples is going back to school and, and, and uh, you know, cooking more, whereas, you know, soft fruit is, is more about fresh and eat out of your hand in summertime and in the water. So great transition. And that's what I want to talk about today. As, as we transition, it's a unique element within that, and that is there are certain apples that are only around for a very short period of time because of the nature of them and and, and one of the nature is is that they don't hold up well so they're not they're not cultivated for us anymore in a in an industrial age if you will because they're not going to they're not going to ship to Guam they're they're not going to ship from California to New York so every little region has their own unique apples. You know, it's interesting, uh, living in California, and we're so abundant with everything, we're the, we're the fifth largest apple producer in the United States, with Washington, of course. But number two is New York, which I just didn't think about. Pennsylvania is third, and fourth is Michigan. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh, Johnny yeah, Appleseed sure. in the Northeast mm -hmm. makes all sorts of sense. But as agriculture, for me, it was, it was interesting to fit that in. The varieties you're going to see right now this time of year are the early ones. Some of them are going to maintain themselves like a gala. Gala is probably the first big apple that comes out that is around almost year-round. But you also find the, the, what would be the precursor, the, uh, the prelude to a gold delicious, and that's called a ginger gold, which is very similar but has more of a green casting to it. And this time of year, what you can say about apples in a general way is they're going to have some common characteristics, which is they're going to be mild, they're going to be probably slightly tart, maybe astringent, and have a higher degree of acidity. 
that now, is exactly that being said, how I there's like of course some that are that are on the sweet side, but early apples are generally going to give you that kind of basic mouth feel. That it's, tartness. It's so interesting because apples, you know, there's maybe nothing. I know that bananas are the most bought item in a grocery store when it comes to produce, but uh, maybe that's not I the case anymore. That. But is that still the case? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, really. But yet. Apples are, I would say, the most common, the most familiar for us, right? We, who, yeah. who has not grown up with an apple? Even baby food is made out of apples and maybe some bananas. But apples and pears, it's really a, a produce of our childhood, right, a, a piece of fruit. Well, yeah, I think it's, you know, like you say, applesauce for babies, apple juice. Many people uh, feed that to their kids. It's, it is prolific, and it's something that yes. you can find all year round with, with, with storage capabilities that we've had for, you know, 50 years. So, and even prior to that with, with root cellars. So, yeah, it is a real basic, you know, uh, apple a day. Uh, take one to your, to your teacher. It is great food, uh, high in lots of essential vitamin A. What, what I love about them is, again, the varieties that exist. Uh, there's a good dozen you can get all the time, but this time of year when you get just a couple here and there, it's really sure. wonderful. Uh, I have a guy working for me from Vermont, and he's telling me about a couple varieties. One's called Apollo, Apollo Red. Never heard of it, never will. I'll never see it, I'm sure. Uh, Macintosh is really big, of course, in New York. Michigan's got their own variety. So it's so wonderful. I love to get together with produce guys from different areas this time of year. I go, so what are you guys harvesting right now? A bald one? Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I remember a bald one. I had it once. Earl, when you say that, that apples really have a year-round season, I mean, in all fairness, it is the early days of fall, and that is really the domestic production. When we talk about apples past November or December, we are talking most of the time storage until May when the Southern Hemisphere Yep. starts to harvest that's when their fall begins and then we have uh, apples that are fresh but still shipped from half around the globe so really if if somebody is a true apple enthusiast from august to november that's really when our when our apples are coming in and are fresh and are not stored and are not temperature regulated they are they literally were on the tree the week before uh, which yeah. makes them really different right Oh, they really are. You know, I've had the privilege of having uh, trees on my property and, and not harvesting them right away and leaving them on, even leaving them on, you know, till after the first frost where many of them already have, have, have reached the ground. But take one off the tree at that point and eat one, and the flavor characteristics you get at that point <laughs> are completely different than anything. I mean, being, being able to be on the tree, I mean, they're just this side of being fermented almost, but they, they develop incredible characteristics. And, and that is really what you want to look for. You're right, very, very late July, all through probably mid-November, that is when fresh apples are being picked. And I love oh, just with, with other crops that you're describing, you know, from tomatoes to peppers to corn to, uh, it's just beautiful, the abundance. Apple is one of those items where there are maybe thousands, thousands of different mm -hmm. varieties of apples. Uh, there's a great company that, if somebody was interested in apple trees, Trees of Antiquity, who I had the pleasure to working with, I think they offer something like 300 different varieties just for domestic planting use for your backyard. 300 different varieties. And one being a Spitzenberg, a German yep. variety, actually gets better when you pick it the longer you store it. 
So yes. it's it's just mind blowing what nature can provide in terms of utility of of how to use it. You can pick it and store it for two months, and it's actually better than when you just picked it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's amazing. <laughs> so the this time of year early is when, generally speaking, again the apples are not going to store very well. That's why they're out early. Like a Spitzenberg and a Fuji, endless varieties. Those two in particular, you pick later. They store really well, even outside of technology, even in a cool, dark place. Those two later varieties will hold for a long period of time. But Great. this year, this is a time of year where you're going to see a variety that you're not going to see for the rest of the year. Wonderful. And that is time to kind of get a little adventurous, try that, share it with a buddy, have it with some cheese. And again, again, if you if you can't find it in the grocery store, this is you know kind of the time to go to the farmers market because your mm-hmm. your farmers yeah. wherever you are really throughout the country, this is it. This is if you ever want to go to a farmers market, don't necessarily go in January. I mean, <laughs> local farmers will need the income mm-hmm. then too, and you we want to support them. But in terms of varieties, really, the the July, August, September months are are just amazing. The the tables can barely hold what is being produced. It's just lovely. Thank you for announcing the early, early fall days. Inevitably, <laughs> they're here. It was an amazing summer. The fall is coming. If not yet to you, it will be in the next just two, three weeks. Everything is changing. The light, the scent in the air, the moisture in the air, it's clear and it's here. So, um, <laughs> And you yep. just announced that. Thank you so much, Earl. Apples, look out for what's coming in the next couple months, really. And, uh, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to close with saying we're looking at a big season out of Washington, which is the biggest apple producer in the country. It should be a very prolific uh, year. There's more and more acreage that's being committed to organic, and that, and that acreage is coming into production. So it should be a very, very good year for apples. Lovely. Thank you so much for that update. And yep. go back to work, and we'll have you back next week. Excellent. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Errol. Errol. Take care. See you, Sita. Bye. Bye. I am very excited. I think I've said on the show before that apples, they're not necessarily one of my favorite fruits, but it, it really does depend on the season because this is what I like. I like these tart apples, these kind of more juicy tart apples than the really sweet ones that you get in the late fall and the ones that come out of storage. So this is like apple heaven for me. I'm very excited. <laughs> an, an apple three days picked from the, or the, that day, the day before, picked from the tree directly already ripe, you know, mature, ripe. Beautiful. And a fun time to pair it with the stone fruit, with the lingering bits of summer fruit, just yes. like Girl said, that, that combination cross. of the, the crispy, tart flavor of your early harvest apples and the really juicy sweetness of your stone fruit. I just, as he was describing it, had an image of a sandwich that would include both and what the experience would be to bite through those different layers and have such a different mm. experience of each of the fruits. All while you're wearing something that's sustainably made. You know what? I'm interested to see just how rapidly this change begins to gain momentum across yeah, the yeah. country. And I know that, I mean, I, as we were talking about the way that the garment industry, you said once one person does it, more people will follow. And it reminds me of the backstory of the first Zoolander film, which actually really was around this topic and the fact that they are finally doing a sequel. And I mean, this is just a major blockbuster pop cult movie. They're doing another. It's it's releasing next year in 2016. And I am really interested to see whether they pick up this topic again again and, and how much it's changed and whether or not it's going to give more opportunity for people to think about sustainable fashion. You know, you're making a good point. The organic food movement really had its beginnings again 
in the 1970s, mid-70s maybe, and it has taken until now to really be a fully acknowledged, established movement. And I don't think anything that follows now will take as long. I don't think we need to spend 40 years, 45 years to create awareness. The awareness is here. So anything Here's now hoping. following in its footsteps um, with the the help of, of the internet and social media and other ways to distribute good information quickly, uh, it's just, it, it doesn't need to take 10 or 20 years. Let's hope for something quicker. Sustainable fashion, sustainable food. That's, of course, an organic conversation. Hmm. I'm Helga Hilberg. I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Talk to you then. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.